I have a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we're finding out about the sudden death of baobab trees in Africa and getting an update on the latest research in Antarctica. Plus, we'll be hearing how zebrafish stem cells are protected from radiation. This is the Nature Podcast for the 14th of June 2018. I'm Ellie Mackay. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, Noah Baker has been delving into a scientific mystery. A mystery surrounding the deaths of a type of tree which goes by many names. The tree of Africa, the upside-down tree, the tree of life, the baobab. Growing up, we would name baobab trees after, you know, maybe after their shape. If it is too ugly, say uh, this ugly one. If it produces a fruit, sweet fruit, we'll say this one is sweet mama. The baobabs are completely unique tree in, in, in lots of respects. Those sort of massive trees that are just about as, as wide as they're tall. It's probably the, mo- the oldest lived. It's certainly the largest uh, of the angiosperms, the flowering plants. It is a tree that every child will identify with. If you picture an African savanna, more likely than not, you'll picture a baobab tree. A solemn giant, somehow bulbous and spindly at the same time, often described as growing upside down. Now, new research investigating the age of baobabs has shown that many of the largest and oldest trees in the world are dead or dying, and scientists don't know why. Once upon a time, a long time ago, the creator invited all animals to his office so that he could give them trees, you know, seedlings for planting. That's Witness Konzanai from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's just finished his PhD on the governance of the baobab. And the hyena of all animals was very lazy and he went to the creators very late. And when he got there, the only sitting that was left was the, that of a baobab tree. And he didn't impress the hyena. So in anger, the hyena took the sibling, threw it far away. That, that's, that's what happened. That's how, how the... Baobab ended up with such an ugly shape. There are countless folktales like this one, each surrounding the baobab, many explaining its bizarre shape. Here's Chris Surridge, the editor of Nature Plants, with a scientific version. Normally, trees grow, they have a, they have a trunk, uh, and they pretty much have well, one trunk, and then they, they split off further up, up into branches. Uh, now, baobabs are a bit weird in that they, uh, through their life, can produce additional trunks uh, that come up out of the ground. You sometimes see the you know, suckers come out of things like blackberries, but uh, the, the, trees do not do this. Uh, but the baobab does. It throws up these, these extra trunks. 
uh, a ring of stems which are then fused together to form this um, this empty uh, empty centre. They, they become sort of circular but with a gap in the middle. This is the leading theory for how baobabs have ended up so fat and also explains why, more often than not, they have huge cavities inside. This bizarre architecture leads to problems if scientists want to find out how old a tree is. Normally when you, when you try and date a tree, uh, you have to chop it down and count the rings into the centre, uh, or you, um, you put a bore in and you can do that and, and, and check these. But there's no centre to a baobab tree. So when researchers decided to measure the age of the largest baobabs known across the African continent, they had to turn to another method. Here's Adrian Petrut from the University of Babes Bolyai in Romania. The only possibility to date a baobab accurately is uh, to radiocarbon date samples collected from its stems. Radiocarbon dating is not uncommon when dealing with very old trees. In fact, trees are often used to calibrate carbon dating methods. Because counting tree rings is such a reliable way of measuring age, it can be used as a solid point of comparison. Adrian Petrut's team started surveying trees in 2005, and some of those they surveyed were truly ancient. The oldest trees were around 2,000 years old, and we found a specimen in Zimbabwe, the so-called Panke Baobab, and we collected samples which were up to 2,450 years old. These are trees which sprouted before Aristotle even proposed the division of the sciences, Trees which were already centuries old when Julius Caesar took the throne in Rome. This is just an incredible age. Trees are happy to grow for, for hundreds of years, but getting, getting up to the, the, these sorts of millennial ages uh, is something that the flowering plants, the flowering trees, just don't do. It's worth noting here that there are non-flowering trees which are even older. Now, when a baobab gets really large or old, it can take on a particular significance Here's witness again. To an African person who identifies with these trees, once a tree becomes big, it becomes sacred. They become, you know, venues for spirits of the land. This significance adds even more weight to another discovery that Petrut and his team made. It was very unexpected to find that many old and large trees die in a very short time span. Specifically, they found that nine of the 13 oldest trees measured and five of the six largest trees have all died in the last 12 years. Now, these trees are all spread across Africa, sometimes thousands of miles apart. There was no sign of disease and the revered trees are usually very well cared for. They all even had names. It therefore seems too much of a coincidence that all of these deaths could happen by chance so suddenly. In fact, Petrut claims that it's impossible. Statistically, it's impossible for trees which have an age limit of over 2,000 years to die in such a large number over a such short time span. It begs the question then, what's causing the deaths of these baobabs? The obvious conclusion is that it's something environmental, uh, something to do with changes in climate. Uh, but again, that's very difficult to, uh, to nail down because over 2,000 years, these trees have seen a great deal of climate. I mean, they've lived through the little ice ages that happened in about the 1400s, 1500s. So they've seen much colder temperatures than now. They've seen droughts. They've seen um, practically floods. And yet they have carried through that. It is true that as far as we can tell, the temperature in these areas is warmer now than it has often been in the past. And it is also quite dry at the moment. So maybe this is going on. But we really don't know um, what it is that, uh, that is killing these trees, if indeed this is an unusual Uh, amount of deaths. It's an interesting scientific mystery. As an academic who works with the baobab, Witness too was intrigued. 
But for him, speaking as a Zimbabwean, the findings also represented something else. To ecologists, it is just the dying of trees. But to an African person, the death of such big trees means the death of culture. It means the death of identity. It means the death of spirituality. Increasingly, I think people are getting to know about climate change, even in the remotest areas. In fact, you don't need to be told. You leave it because you see your rivers drying. You see you experience floods every year. But what I'm not sure of is if people are able to relate the death of these trees to climate change. If the big trees are, are dying, I think what we need to do is to quickly establish what the cause is. Because for some communities, the baobab tree, is a, it defines who they are. That was a witness, Kanzanai, from the University of Cape Town, Adrienne Petrut from the University of Babes Bulyai, and Chris Surridge, the editor-in-chief of Nature Plants, where Adrienne's study was published. Thanks in particular to Witness and his wife and children for performing the song about the Baobab, or Muyu in their mother tongue. This week, Nature is publishing a special Insight on Antarctica, which features a number of reviews and analyses, looking back over the region's history and forward to its possible fate. Reporter Adam Levy has been speaking to some of the researchers behind these articles, taking a look at how the different timelines of research can inform our understanding of the climate of our planet. Locked in Antarctica is the past, present and future of our planet. Ice cores reveal the changes Earth has been through in the distant past. Satellite measurements uncover how global warming is changing the ice today. And all these data suggest that the fate of Antarctica, whatever that may be, will define our future. This week's Nature features an Antarctica special with a wealth of research and comment. I spoke with three authors from three of the studies to paint a picture of the past, the present and the future of the icy continent. First, to the past, and researcher Christo Bausert. Antarctica is really unique in recording the climate of the past. And one of the reasons is you can think of it as a tree. A tree grows a ring every year. And in the same way, Antarctica records a layer of snow every year. And particularly interesting is the fact that Antarctic ice has little bubbles inside of it. And so these bubbles have a memory or a record of how the atmosphere has changed. And how do we actually access this record of the ancient atmosphere via this ice? Yeah, so we do it by drilling. And so we start at the top and just drill a core all the way down. And, and it's three miles long. So it's a, just a, an enormous stick of ice. And how far back does this enormous stick of ice give us access to? The oldest ice we have found in one stick is 800,000 years old. And what's it teaching us about the Earth's past? It's telling us a lot of things, both about the long-term changes and about changes on small timescales, so great detail. And so on these long timescales of hundreds of thousands of years, we can see the ice ages. On the short timescale, on timescales of maybe hundreds and thousands of years, we see also very abrupt changes in climate. Of course, right now we are changing the climate a great deal through pumping greenhouse gases and all sorts of other chemicals into the atmosphere. Looking at these records that we have from Antarctica, how unusual is what's happening today in this kind of geological time frame? 
Yeah, what's happening today is highly unusual if you look at it on the long geologic time. So, for example, right now, if you look at carbon dioxide or CO2, typically in during those ice ages, we're about 180 parts per million. During these warm climates in between, it's typically 280. Right now, we're over 400. So we're way above anything that the world has ever seen. Also, the rate at which CO2 is increasing is much higher, maybe 10 to 100 times faster than anything we see in the ice core record. So it is very clear that our impact on the atmosphere is really profound. That was Christo Bausert. And now onto the present. A huge amount of work is unpicking how Antarctica is changing today. I found Pippa Whitehouse, an author of another study in the special. Her paper combines several different metrics in search of the most comprehensive picture yet of the changes in Antarctica. Traditionally, when research kicked off in Antarctica, sort of in, in the 50s, it was very much on-the-ground measurements. Um, but these days, since the early 90s, we've had satellite measurements, and that's completely revolutionised our ability to actually quantify what's going on across the whole of the ice sheet. So we actually use three independent techniques to try and quantify how quickly Antarctica is melting. And then we look at the answer we get from each technique and see if they agree, which is it's an interesting exercise in <laughs> itself. Um, but the, the three measurements that are made, one, satellites measure the volume of the ice sheet. A second one is a different set of satellites measure the mass. And then the third measurement that we make is the speed of the ice that's flowing off the continent. And so what answers do you end up getting? How, how much mass is being lost from Antarctica? That's really the shocking thing in this study. Um, comparing our results from 2012 and today, we can see that actually it's melting three times as fast as it was back then. Um, and it won't sound like a lot, but we think it's melting at about 0.6 millimetres of year sea level contribution each year. But, but as you said... That doesn't sound like a huge amount of sea level rise. Uh, is this concerning for the future then? Very much so. A threefold increase over just a decade is staggering. It's, it's that scale of change. And what that means is we don't really understand the processes. I mean, you have been looking at what has happened in Antarctica over the past couple of decades. But when you think about what might happen over coming decades, how, how do you feel about Antarctica's potential future? I find... The potential future, worrying, but, but actually very interesting for scientists. It's, it's quite rare that we get something to change so quickly in our lifetimes that we can study. Um, and it's unfortunate it's such a, a catastrophic change. Pippa Whitehouse there. Of course, what happens in Antarctica over the coming decades and centuries is not yet settled. To a great extent, it depends on whether inaction on climate change continues and we fail to limit emissions. And that brings us to Antarctica's future. Our final paper from the special presents two very different narratives for Antarctica half a century from now. Here's author Valérie Masson-Delmotte. Um, in one case, Antarctica and its ecosystems as well would stay quite similar to those of today. Slight warming and most of the ice staying frozen in Antarctica. And the second narrative... It's extremely different. There's a strong warming and the onset of an irreversible loss of ice through the thinning of ice shelves, the floating parts of the ice sheet that are in touch with the ocean. And uh, due to ocean acidification, major changes in the biodiversity in the oceans and the ecosystems around Antarctica as well. 
hugely different pictures that you're painting. And, and of course, one of the, the biggest things that people are worried about from Antarctica is, is its contribution to sea level rise. What is the difference between the kind of best case picture and worst case picture? In the best case picture, um, the contribution of Antarctica to sea level rise in 50 years from now would be small, a couple of centimetres. Um, in the business as usual, high emission, growing demand scenario, we expect the contribution of Antarctica to gradually increase in the coming decades and to continue for uh, hundreds of years in the future. So we'd be committed to more and more ice being lost from Antarctica in that scenario. Exactly. So there are not only two very different scenarios for Antarctica and its ecosystems, but there are also very different scenarios with respect to those exposed to sea level rise risks. And so what we wanted to do is share um, the state of knowledge in a way that, is, uh, that has a narrative, not to trigger feelings, but maybe rather than that, to trigger action. That was Valérie Masson-Delmotte of the Laboratory of Climate and Environment Science in France, speaking with reporter Adam Levy. Before her, you heard from Pippa Whitehouse of Durham University in the UK and Christo Bowsert of Oregon State University in the US. Find all their papers and more at nature.com forward slash nature. Later in the show, we'll be finding out how the European Commission plans to spend its biggest ever research and innovation budget. That's coming up in the news chat. Up next, though, it's Shamini Bundell with a quick one-two of science in this week's Research Highlights. Predicting exactly when a baby's going to be born isn't the most accurate of sciences. But now, a new non-invasive blood test could help determine both the age of a foetus and when it might be born. The test measures the levels of particular placental RNA molecules circulating in the blood of a pregnant person – to predict the foetus's age and delivery date with about the same accuracy as an ultrasound scan. And a second RNA test can assess the risk of the baby being born prematurely. These tests could be useful in low-resource settings, but the researchers stress that since this was a pilot study involving 38 women, larger clinical trials will be required to validate the tests. The full story has been successfully delivered in science. Like humans... Bonobos turn their noses up at obviously contaminated food, according to new research. In a series of experiments, bonobos living in a sanctuary in the Democratic Republic of Congo were offered a choice between clean apple slices, apple slices contaminated with faeces or soil, and bananas at increasing distances from fresh faeces. Understandably, the apes avoided the contaminated food and the food closest to the poo pile. Further work showed that the bonobos were less likely to take food when in the presence of unpleasant odours, although younger animals were less cautious than their seniors. This disgust response may be an evolutionary system designed to protect against diseases. As yet, the team behind this new work are unsure whether bonobos express their disgust in a recognisable way, but they plan to continue their research to further investigate the evolutionary roots of the response. Dig into this paper at the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B. One paper that caught our eye this week combines a whole load of popular topics in biology. Evolution, stem cells and zebrafish 
You've got to love those zebrafish. Well, one person whose curiosity was definitely piqued was Charmini. So here she is again to tell us more. In your body, with every second that goes by, around two million of your red blood cells die. Fortunately, your body also makes new blood cells at a rate of around two million per second. These red cells are made in the bone marrow, inside bones such as the ribs, pelvis and vertebrae. White blood cells are made here too, vital for our immune systems, and both types of blood cells are made by stem cells. Understanding these blood stem cells, where they're situated and how they work, can have important implications for medicine, as Leonard Zon explained to me. So blood stem cells are cells that produce all of the blood in your body. And from a clinical perspective, if you have a patient who has a leukemia, if you treat them with chemotherapy, that erases the leukemia, uh, but it also erases their immune system. And so it's very helpful to give back blood stem cells from a matched donor like a brother or sister, and they end up amplifying tremendously to reconstitute the blood system. So I can see um, you know, why you're interested in, in studying these blood stem cells. Um, but this paper, rather than looking at leukemia treatments or anything like that, is actually looking at an evolutionary perspective, which is quite interesting. When we first started studying blood development in my lab, I knew about um, being a hematologist. I knew that the blood cells are formed in the bones. Uh, but when we started doing work in the other model organism that I study, the zebrafish, we found that the kidney was where the blood cells were made and the blood stem cells were actually in the kidney. And it was kind of strange to me to think that why isn't it in the same place? And so that's been the central question of this uh, paper and uh, you know, the evolutionary implications of that. And people have known for a while that blood stem cells live in different places in different creatures. So for fish, it's in the kidneys and amphibians, it's, it's often in the liver. In birds and mammals, it's in the bones. But it wasn't really clear why that would be the case. Um, but you weren't even trying to answer that question when you started out. You were um, initially studying the, the environments around the, the, the blood stem cells in your body. So, so what other cells and things were surrounding them? They're sort of niche, is that right? That's right. So in these organs that have stem cells, there are specific regions that are very important to support those stem cells or to nurse those stem cells. And these regions are known as the stem cell niche. Friedrich Kapp, the postdoc who did this work, was able to find uh, that melanocytes actually came into the niche and seemed to be very abundant and to form a sheet of tissue that was over the marrow, over the place in where the blood stem cells were. And what is a melanocyte and, and why was this layer of them unusual? Well, so melanocytes cover your whole body and are the pigment cells of the skin. And so I asked Friedrich, what would these melanocytes be doing right next to the stem cells? And he actually came up with the model that this large sheet of tissue formed an umbrella and was protecting the stem cells from UV irradiation. That was truly an amazing moment because I realized at that point uh, from my reading that the major theory in the early 1980s was that the stem cells in mammals had retreated to the bones because they were being shielded from irradiation. So then the idea is that because birds and mammals 
live mostly on land, they then don't have extra protection from that UV getting absorbed by the water. So then inside the bone might be a more shielded little home for the stem cells. Exactly. And uh, we went on in this paper to show that the bone is really good at shielding uh, from a variety of types of irradiation. And then you, you also tested the effects of UV radiation on the fish stem cells, which are by the kidneys. What we did was to use a sun lamp and be able to irradiate the fish um, from above. And we were able to show that in an embryo that has melanocytes, the stem cells are protected. But in an embryo that lacks the melanocytes, or even that has melanocytes that don't have the black pigment, that these animals, their stem cells were hurt by the UV irradiation from the sun lamp. So you now, are you now confident that that is the, the purpose of that melanocyte umbrella? Well, one of the experiments we did, which I have to say is one of the best experiments my lab has really ever done, was to realize that this umbrella of melanocytes was on top of the kidney marrow. This would protect from UV irradiation above. And so what Friedrich did was to anesthetize the fish and to turn them upside down. So now the umbrella of melanocytes was under the stem cells rather than on top. And when we put the umbrella down and then irradiated from the top of the fish, the stem cells were hurt. And so given that birds and mammals have their stem cells inside their bones, then presumably they wouldn't need um, protection from melanocytes anymore. We examined all the fish that we could get our hands on, and every single uh, fish species had the melanocytes over the kidney marrow. But then when we went to birds, um, we no longer saw the melanocytes over the kidney. And there are lots of stem cells in, in our body for making different types of tissue. So um, what's so special about blood stem cells in terms of this UV protection? It turns out that blood stem cells are particularly sensitive. So if you think about a radiation exposure like Chernobyl, the first organ of your body that is hurt by that is your blood stem cells. And that puts you at risk for leukemia. That was Leonard Zon of Harvard University, Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. He was talking to Sharmini Bundell about his team's paper, which is out this week at nature.com forward slash nature, where you'll also find a News and Views article about the work. Right then, listeners, now it's time for the news chat. And it's another week and another debut. And this time it's Holly Else, one of the reporters here at Nature. Hi, Holly. Hi. Well, last week on the podcast, Adam and Flora mentioned that there was a big upcoming announcement from the European Commission about their next pot of funding money. And, well, listeners, that announcement has now happened. And Holly, what's going on? So last week, the European Commission announced how they're going to spend uh, the biggest pot of money they've ever had for research and development. Um, it's 100 billion euros that, that, that they will have to distribute. Um, and scientists have been eagerly anticipating the details on, on how that will work. That is a lot of money then. So, I mean, goodness, firstly, where is this money coming from? So this money comes from the member states of the European Union when they pay their fees in to become part of the commission. And uh, this year in the budget negotiations, um, the research and innovation directorate managed to campaign to get an increase in the, the money from the big EU pot that goes into research and innovation. Oh, goodness. So as you say, the biggest one yet then. Do we have any ideas of how it's going to be broken down? 
Yeah, so they've got three what they call funding streams within the programme. The first one will go towards um, funding basic research. Then there's a second pot which will uh, address the challenges that society faces and how to boost competitiveness. And the third stream is really about innovation. So it's about helping people and, and companies create you know, these wonderful innovative products that can disrupt the market and create new jobs. Yeah, and in the news story, the phrase radical changes is used to describe how innovation will be funded. Um, what's so radically different about it? So what they've done is they've decided to create this body called the European Innovation Council. And why they've decided to change it is, is that before they, they thought they were only getting incremental advances in innovation. So, for example, you would tell somebody, we want a better battery. So they would continue along the work that they're already doing to improve batteries. And actually, the change that you would get would only be very small. And they really want people to be bold and suggest things that, that may not otherwise get funding. So Horizon Europe, then, as it's called, is taking over from Horizon 2020, uh, the previous funding tranche. Um, when's it due to start? Uh, so it's coming in, will come in uh, in 2021. That's when Horizon 2020 finishes in 2020. Which I guess makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> how do the two things differ? So the big difference this time is that the European Commission has changed the rules on who can actually take part, so which scientists can apply for funding. So previously, a country could make a payment to the European Commission, even if they were not a European country, and that meant that their researchers could bid for funding. The rules have been pretty strict, so you had to be either a very close neighbour, a specific type of trading partner, or be a country trying to join the EU. And the difference this time is that they've made a new category for countries that are able to join in that way. And this is the way that the UK will now be able to bid for money in the programme. So the UK was certainly part of Horizon 2020 then, but I guess with Brexit, maybe it's on the outside looking in? Exactly. And so the UK is really concerned about how it can actually get its scientists able to bid for this money because the UK gets a lot of funding from the European Commission for research. Um, and so this new change in the rules actually sort of gives a bit of hope that actually this is one area where the UK can still work incredibly closely with the European Union. So Holly, finally then for this one, I mean, I guess 100 billion euros is a very round number. Um, what are the chances it's going to be exactly that then in 2021 when everything kicks off? Well, pretty slim, to be honest, because what has to happen now is that the European Parliament and the European Council of Ministers will have to have a bit of a tussle over how much actually um, they want to spend on research and innovation. And also any countries who might want to join the scheme through this new association mechanism that we discussed um, will also be adding a contribution to the pot. So we've got 100 billion um, at the moment. That's just a proposal. We don't really know exactly how much it will end up with, but it won't be too dissimilar. OK, then, well, let's move on to our next story today then. And well, it couldn't be more different, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to be talking about koalas. So, yes, this is some research presented at the meeting of the American Society for Microbiology last week in Georgia. Uh, and it's looking at um, koalas and how what they eat affects the bacteria in their guts. As we know, I mean, koalas are remarkably fussy eaters and I think eucalyptus is their only source of sustenance. Yeah, apparently. So there's two different types of eucalyptus which koalas generally eat and apparently they can really prefer one over another. And this is a problem when ecologists are trying to find new habitats for koalas to live in because their habitats are being destroyed by humans. So they want to resettle them into to new places. But if they don't have this specific type of eucalyptus that a particular koala is really interested in eating, then, then that process doesn't actually work successfully because the koala then has nothing to eat because it's too fussy. So you say then that this research was presented at a microbiology conference. Um, how does microbiology play a role? 
So the researchers took some samples of of faeces from a group of koalas across Australia um, and they found that depending on which type of eucalyptus they like to eat, they actually had different bacteria in their guts. And so to see if they could entice a koala who only liked one specific type to eat the other, they decided to um, do a faecal transplant. So that's taking the microbiome from the guts of one koala who eats one specific type and putting it into the other. And so within 18 days, the the microbiomes of the koalas that had the procedure were nearly identical to the ones that they received the donor from. Um, And surprisingly, some of those who got a transplant actually then went on to start to eat the type of food that they previously didn't want to. Well, Holly, the the human microbiome is a sort of an area of of great interest at the moment. I mean, and it seems like in this case, the animal microbiome might be as well. Has anything similar been tried in any other sorts of animals? Yeah, so there were several other um, researchers presenting at this exact conference who described similar things. So there was one who presented results of transplanting bacteria from frog skin onto another frog to try and protect them from a fungal infection. And then also some researchers at San Diego Zoo who looked at the gut microbiome of a near-threatened southern white rhinoceros and found that actually if they changed the diet of these rhinos, it actually changed the microbiome significantly enough to affect how fertile they were. In fact, two female rhinos who had their diets changed actually went on to give birth to healthy calves within two years. Well, Holly, though, I suppose with microbiome stuff, there's a a lot of correlation and we're yet to have that sort of perfect causation. Um, What are the researchers saying? Well, they're saying that this is sort of really early days for this kind of research. Um, And actually, only really now they've had the tools to be able to look at these things in so much detail. So it could be something that we see more of in the years ahead. Well, thanks for that, Holly. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to know more about the latest science news, don't forget to head over to nature.com slash news. That's it for this week's show. Well, hang on a minute. Isn't there something else we need to tell people about? Maybe a small video that you've made? So, uh, yeah, there's just time to tell you about our latest video. It's all about 3D printing magnetically morphing materials. And you can find it on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Ellie Mackay. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time.